All right, you ready for some church, friends? All right. Um, what would you say the theme of that last song was? Freedom. Thank you, God. Right? I thank God. I thank God. Um, so much to thank God for. Um, know what I rarely hear people pray and say thank you to God for? I'm only slightly serious here. Sermons. <laughs> hey, somebody's clapping backstage. Right? Have you ever heard somebody, God, I'm just overflowing with thanks and gratitude this morning because I get to listen to a long sermon. <coughs> I'm choking on myself. Um, <clears throat> behind that, though, I mean, rightly so, because in the presence of every good sermon is, is like an all-too-human person. <laughs> right? Behind a sermon, however, is the Word of God. And have you ever heard anybody say, God, I am so thankful for your word? I've heard that a bunch of times, right? Here's the privilege that we have this morning. I mean, there's still an imperfect human being who's sharing a sermon. But you are going to hear one of Jesus' very own sermons today in Jesus' very own words. Did you know that there are some of Jesus' sermons in the Bible? The most famous one is in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's full of wild, countercultural things that if any church ever took seriously, literally would still change the world. And there's seven sermons that Jesus preaches, short ones, in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. These ones are not preached by the earthly human Jesus when he was here in the flesh, but by the heavenly, resurrected, glorified Jesus to some of the first churches of the ancient world. Now, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Roman Empire ruled the world. They had different territories and provinces, and one of the provinces where the church especially took root early on was called the province of Asia. Not the entire continent of Asia like are on our modern maps, but the province of Asia, which roughly corresponds to like the western part of the modern country of Turkey. Maybe I should have put a map up. If you, if you know where Turkey is on a map, that's where some of the first churches were. And Jesus preaches to seven churches in that province a short message um, at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Now, I have uh, a little bit of a... Well, I want to say thank you to this congregation. Um, I spent some months on sabbatical. My wife Sarah and I had some amazing times as husband and wife together. We were able to travel a little bit. Um, I was able to travel to Asia Minor, or the modern country of Turkey, um, for several weeks. I also have the kind of the advantage of I have a sister who lives there. Um, here's a picture of my brother-in-law, myself, in front of, there's one church in the city of Ephesus these days. If you can see the sign, it says, Ephes Kilesesi, the New Covenant Church of Ephesus. This is, I mean, in the surrounding area, there are more than a million people. There is one little church. Like, there are almost zero Christians in this country. Um, my sister and brother-in-law um, work with and disciple first-generation Turkish believers. Um, I met the pastor of this church. I kind of said to them, like, do you guys, like, read the book of Ephesians all the time? 
And he laughed and was like, no, I never really thought of it that way. Like, honestly, it'd be like if there was a book in the Bible called Chicago Winds, right? Like, this is the same church 2,000 years later. All right, here's sometimes these, what I'm calling seven sermons, are called by people who study the Bible seven letters to the early churches. But I don't think they're letters because letters 2,000 years ago had a certain format different than the way we we write letters these days. There's some letters in the Bible. The way Jesus speaks to the church in Revelation is nothing like those letters. Like he's not writing them letters. Jesus asks a particular man, John, who was an apostle, to write down his sermon. So basically, John is taking dictation and writing down Jesus' sermon, and Jesus is preaching to these early congregations. And if you hear all seven of these messages in the first few weeks of 2024, what you'll notice is that Jesus has some encouraging things to say to these churches. He typically has a challenge or a caution, or something that they need to do to grow spiritually and live into their calling and Jesus' picture of who he wants them to be. And isn't the same thing true of us today? Like, I'm sure if Jesus is here in person, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus would say some really encouraging things to us and also have some provocative words of challenge and caution for what's next. And I hope, at least today, that we can see some parallels between Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church and Ephesus Church. Here's how all of these messages start. Now to the angel, or the messenger, of the church in Ephesus, write, again, this is Jesus talking to John, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, So as part of Jesus' introduction to his sermon, he wants everybody to know who he is and his way of introducing himself to the Ephesians is to say, I'm the person who holds the seven stars and I'm the person who walks among the seven lamps. Like, what does that mean? Number one, notice that there are seven stars in this very room right now. Um, In several places in the book of Revelation, Jesus is identified this way. And in the ancient world, when astronomy was not quite as good as what we have, folks focused on the seven bright lights of the sky. The sun, Mercury, Venus, the moon, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter. Because those predictably, like ancient people, like knew the orbits, I mean, kind of, and when they were going to appear. And if you could imagine someone who could hold all of that, that would mean that they are infinitely powerful, the holder of the seven stars. Roman emperors were so big-headed that they would often make coins 2,000 years ago that they had the front of the, their picture on the front side of the coin, and on the back side would have them with seven stars, as if to say, like, I'm the guy. Maybe modern political candidates should do that. No, right? We don't need any more of that. So so Jesus is saying in direct contradiction to the politicians who are running around the ancient world like, no, 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 it's not the emperor Nero. It's not the emperor Domitian who is the one who is like godlike and holds the stars. In fact, 
church, I hold the stars and I hold you. So that's the first thing that Jesus is saying. And then Jesus is saying, I am walking in the midst of seven lampstands, and it's very clear that the seven lampstands represent each of the seven churches in the province of Asia Minor. And Jesus is saying, I'm not just off in some faraway heaven, but by my spirit, I am walking in your midst right now, church. So these two things, Jesus has all the power, and Jesus is right here with the church. This isn't John talking. This isn't me talking. This is Jesus talking. And the same is true today, yes? Does Jesus still have all the power? Is Jesus right here in our midst? Does that comfort us? Does that challenge us? Oh my. Right? Both of those things. Here's what Jesus has to say. I know your deeds, church in Ephesus, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So far, so good, right? Praise for this church. What does Jesus identify? Quite frankly, I think these things are true of Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church. Over our 75 years of existence or so, by the way, by the time the Ephesian church got these words, they were maybe 50 years old. So not like a brand new church, but multiple generations old, 50 years old. And this is a hard-working church, a persevering church. It is a church that if people go around spouting nonsense or have truths, or lies about God, or faulty theology. Like the Ephesians are pretty quick to be in the front of the line of like, hey, wait a minute, this isn't the gospel that we received. This isn't what the scriptures say about God. If someone came to Ephesus and were like, I'm actually an apostle, an accredited preacher, and here's what I have to say to you. The Ephesian church could say, actually, the apostle Paul he lived here for three years. The apostle John, he grew old here and preached to our church. So we have pretty good recognition about real apostles. So like, give us your best, preacher man, and we'll see if your ministry rings true to what we've received from God through the gift of the apostles. Like, this is quite a church, honestly. They persevered because Ephesus was a huge city. 2,000 years ago. It had a port that was open 24 hours a day, goods, trade. Um, it's an amazingly well-preserved ancient ruin, um, by the way. And even when there were so few Christians in the first days of the Ephesian church, they were not afraid to stand up and talk about their faith in Jesus. In Acts chapter 19, it's recorded in the Bible that a riot erupted in the giant theater in downtown Ephesus, and for more than two hours, people who did not believe in Jesus but believed in the pagan Greek and Roman gods shouted out loud, great is the goddess Artemis of the Ephesians, because Paul was there trying to open his mouth and talk about Jesus. Um, here's a picture of the stadium or the theater where this happened. Um, I shot that one in panorama, so it looks a little weird. You could still seat 25,000 people in this theater. Like, this is a big place. 
And these early Christians were up against it. And Jesus is saying, for 50 years, Ephesian church, good job. It was also a very intelligent city. They had one of the greatest libraries in the ancient world. The front of the library survives to this day. Like, do you know anybody who builds stuff like that anymore? I mean, it's, it was fairly impressive um, to walk by there and to walk through the front door of the Ephesian library. On the other hand, what happens when you get so fixated on the truth and so entrenched as a countercultural minority in the midst of a big sea of people that you don't know has the same faith as you do, you have the possibility of maybe entrenching too deep, becoming so truth-oriented that you become kind of intolerant and brittle And this is quite possibly what happened over the decades in the Ephesian church. Listen to what Jesus says next. And yet I hold this against you, Ephesian church. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Can you imagine if Jesus said this to you or to us in person? Like, you guys are persevering. Elmer, CRC, you have been faithful. But here's the thing. You've forsaken your first love. Jesus doesn't leave the church there. He gives the pattern for what to do about that. Remember. Remember how far you have fallen. And then repent. And do the things that you did at first If you do not repent, church, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Think to any church that's more than six months old, a year old, to any believer that's been walking with the Lord for a little while, I think Jesus might say something like this. Remember your first love? Remember what it was like when you first sensed the tidal wave of my grace washing over your life? Do you remember how free you felt when you confessed your sins, all the stuff that was wrong in your life, and when you knew that you knew that you knew that you were forgiven? Do you remember how freely you prayed? Do you remember how you loved to open the word and see what else I had to say to you? Can you remember that season of your life? That's where I want to be with you, church. Remember, repent if there's a bunch of stuff in the way of getting back there. And Jesus says, start doing the things you did at first. Now, if I take this personally to my life, um, I mean, I think back to a time when I was like a 12-year-old kid, just mowing somebody's lawn. I don't know what was going in my, on in my life, but lawnmowers are loud. Uh, I'm in somebody's backyard. It was like a big backyard that sloped down to kind of like a wetland. It was really a pain to mow that yard. I mean, they paid, they paid me for it. I was happy to do it. Somewhere halfway through mowing that backyard, I confessed some stuff to God. I said some things about my family of origin and God moved me in such a way that I became a different person on that day. I mean, I still looked the same. I didn't suddenly get smarter or 
you know, my person, I didn't get a personality transplant. All the same things were wrong with me, but like something shifted in my spirit because like as a young adolescent, it was a next level surrender and repentance and God spoke to me. And no matter how bad things get, there is a place in my heart of hearts that I can go right to that place with God. I mean, not to that yard. I can see it, obviously, in my mind. But I know where that spiritual terrain with God is. And if you're far, far away, if you've had a parallel experience, this is God's word from Jesus Christ himself saying, I want to be right there with you again. Now, after that experience, my prayer life, like, leapt up like three levels to a place it had never been before. So when I think of Jesus saying, repent and do the first things, part of what Jesus is saying to me is like, I want to meet you in prayer, man. Like the way that you prayed when you were 12 and 13 years old, when it seems so fresh and new. I was so hungry for the scriptures at that point. Not much intelligence, not much theology, but my appetite for the scriptures was like as high as it's ever been in my entire life. And I know that if I were to follow Jesus' words and remember, I'm trying it right now, and repent and doing more of the first things, it would mean more of that. It would mean a brighter prayer life, it would mean a deeper scripture life, and it would mean a fresh wave of patience for difficult people who are around me. Those are three things that happened to me immediately. How about Elmhurst CRC? We've been around for 75 years as a Christian Reformed Church, maybe 100 years as a church, as a gospel tabernacle before that. I'm not going to tell the whole story now, but this church started with an amazing conversion of a husband and wife who had a mess, a hot mess. They started inviting little kids over to their church, into their house on Sunday afternoon. And it eventually became a church. I mean, so many people were coming. Um, Ken Lorp can testify to this because he later lived in the house. They had to knock the walls down and when the Lorp family moved into the house, they actually had to restore some old walls. Am I right about this? Yeah. So when Jesus says to our church, maybe like, remember, remember the kind of love that I gave you that started this whole thing a hundred years ago. I don't think Jesus is encouraging us to sing certain songs or for the preacher to preach a certain way. He's encouraging us to do what we started with, like why this place existed to begin with, to provide welcome space for the least of these little kids and to love them and teach them what the scripture says. If you're a kid, please take a book today. Like we want you to know about, more about God and to make room for people who are a hot mess because that's who God chose to start this church. Not the beautiful suburban people, People who are a mess. Like, there's nothing wrong with beautiful suburban people. Like, God bless one and all. All I'm saying is, this church didn't start with the best and brightest. It started with the messiest, unlikely candidates. And if you look at yourself, 
I mean, I am happy to self-identify as a spiritual hot mess. Okay? Will you join me? Is that true of you? Or do you really have your act all together? Am I the only one who's going to raise my hand? Like you're all like that? (laughs) Beautiful. A company of hot mess. This is what Jesus wants to work with. He is not waiting up for all of us to be independently wealthy, to be totally trained, to have perfect theology. No, he wants to work with us, the good parts and the messy parts. Now, if we're willing to lead with that, to be honest with that, like God can do so much. He holds the seven stars. I think he can hold our stuff and work with it. Here's how Jesus' sermon to the Ephesians concludes. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Have you heard anything that Jesus has said yet today? To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one, this is how all of Jesus' messages end, by the way. A different blessing, but if you have an ear, listen to what I'm saying. I'm trying to give you something, church. And then Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, and the Greek word for victorious is like the Nike word. So he's basically saying to like, to overcoming Christians, not perfect Christians, to messy Christians who stick with God's grace. And then here's the blessing. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. In all of Jesus' sermons, even though this is the ending book of the Bible, all of Jesus' sermons do a callback uh, to imagery from the first book of the Bible in Genesis. If you've ever read the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden, there are two famous trees. One is the tree of life, and one is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Quiz, one of those trees God instructed Adam and Eve not to eat from. Which was it? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam and Eve, in this perfect garden, were eating from the tree of life. This tree shows up later in Revelation. It's a tree that means that God designed us not to be sinful and die. God actually designed us to live forever with him and gave us originally in that perfect garden the nourishment so that we could live. God asked that we not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because we were never meant to know everything. Only God who holds the seven stars is meant to know everything. And our first parents, just like we would have, fell for Satan's lie and ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes were opened. And we have been reaping the whirlwind ever since. Jesus promises to feed us from the tree of life. One final thought. Friends, I think of Jesus' cross, that tree, that tree, as both the tree of life, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Where has there ever been another tree 
where the goodness of God was so fully on display and where the lies of the devil were so fully on display or the wickedness and deception of what we human beings can get up to was so fully on display. That tree, Jesus' tree, shows everybody what good and evil are in their essence. And that tree, the cross, Jesus' tree, where his blood flows down to wash away all the sins of the world, is the tree of life. Because if you come to that tree, if you come to that table, which is connected, Jesus gives life. If you need Jesus' life today, you are invited to come here. If you are a hot mess, if you are a repenting sinner, this table is for you. Will you pray with me a moment? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word to the Ephesian church all those years ago. Lord, we take this word to heart for ourselves, for our church. Lord, we want to remember and repent and do again the first things. Lord, give us the grace to find that place with you where our love and affection for you and desire for you burn so hot. Thank you for feeding us, nurturing us, providing for us. We want to run to you now. In your name we pray, Lord. And everybody says, amen.